0: Hi, my name is Mandy jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the Bookshop Podcast. Each week, I present interviews with independent bookshop owners from around the globe, authors, and specialists in subjects dear to my heart, the environment, and social justice. To help the show reach more people, please share it with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. You're listening to episode 205. Jennifer De Leon graduated from Connecticut College with a double major in International Relations and French and earned a Master of Arts in Teaching from the University of San Francisco's Center for Teaching Excellence and Social Justice while in the Teach for America program. She went on to earn a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from UMass Boston, and she received several awards and residencies from organizations across the country, including the Breadloaf Writers Conference Hedgebrook, Macondo, Vona, Associates of the Boston Public Library's Writer in Residence Program, and the City of Boston's Artist in Residence Program. De Leon is a winner of the 2016 Walter Dean's Myers Grant, awarded by We Need Diverse Books, and named a 2020 Latinx Trailblazer by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. After a decade teaching in Boston Public Schools, Jennifer is now Associate Professor of English at Farmingham State University and instructor in the Creative Writing and Literature Graduate Program at Harvard University. Her stories and essays have appeared in Plowshares, The Briarcliff Reviews, Iowa Review, Michigan Quarterly Review, Guernica, and Best Women's Travel Writing, to name a few. Jennifer is the author of Don't Ask Me Where I'm From and the essay collection White Space, essays on culture, race, and writing, and editor of the anthology Wise Latinas, Writers on Higher Education. Her latest YA novel is Borderless. In 2022, Jen founded StoryBridge LLC. StoryBridge programs bring people together from all walks of life to shape, share, and hear each other's unique stories. By the end of the program, every participant walks away with new, unforgettable connections. Hi, Jennifer, and welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And you know, it was funny because I don't often read YA books, but in the last month, I've read a couple, yours being one of them, and I thoroughly enjoyed them all. Let's begin with learning about you because I'm fascinated with all of your education.
1: Yes, I guess I'm a true liberal arts student um, at my heart, but I remember being in college and a professor told me that college is a time where you should study something you want to learn more about, not necessarily something you already know about and are interested in learning more about. So I, I thought international relations because I was so interested in traveling to different countries. And if I majored in that, I knew I could study abroad. So I actually was able to study abroad in 12 different countries as an undergrad, including France, Nigeria, and Vietnam. And it completely changed my outlook on life and and to this day really informs my writing.
0: Well, there's no doubt travel is a great education. But how did you get into writing? Because you're also teaching. Is that right? Right. So After I graduated, I worked for a congressman
1: for a year and realized that um, working in politics in that way was was not a right fit for me. I wanted to be much more hands-on actually and on the ground. And so I joined Teach for America, a program that allowed me to move to California and teach third grade for two years in San Jose. And when I was there, there was Um, another program that allowed me to earn my master of arts in teaching at the university of San Francisco. And once I started teaching, I just, I got that bug, you know, and I thought, Oh, I need to do this and writing. I was always writing in my journals, um, you know, working on essays, but it was always something I did on the side and teaching was actually a good fit for writers for, for myself in that sense, because I was able to write during the summer I made a salary so I could afford writing classes here and there and it just kind of all worked together um, to get me to this point and um, I, I can't imagine my life without writing certainly but also without teaching.
0: And are you currently teaching? I
1: am. I'm currently an Associate Professor of Creative Writing at Framingham State which is right outside of Boston and it's it's wonderful.
0: Well, having also been a teacher, I understand the dedication, commitment, and true love of teaching that one needs to be a teacher. So thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. And when you were growing up as a child and teenager, were books reflecting your culture available in libraries and schools where you lived? And how has this changed since you were a child? Growing up, I
1: actually didn't have many books in my life until third grade when I got my first library card. Um, Up until then, the only two books in our house um, were the Yellow Pages and the Bible because we just didn't buy books. It was not part of our family's, you know, um, I guess, culture. And it's not that stories weren't a part of our lives. Um, Absolutely, stories were all day, every day, oral storytelling. But books I didn't see myself in um, until I was much older in college, actually, is when I first read a book by a Latina author. And that's a long time to go without seeing yourself reflected in, in what you're reading. So today, there are some studies done that show the number of characters of color in children's books. And The number of Latinx characters is very low. It's like 5%. Um, whereas 50% of the characters are white and it's improving little by little, but it's still, we still have a long way to
0: go. Yes, we do. It's funny, when I think about growing up in Australia, I was the youngest of four. And while mom and dad didn't have money to spend on luxuries like books, um, we did have hand-me-downs. A lot of books from relatives that had given them to us, or Mum and dad had a few favorites. But I do remember loving the library. And I remember winning books as prizes at school. And that was exciting. Did you have little book prizes at school too? Oh, yeah. Yes. Let's talk about your latest novel, Borderless, in which you tell the story of Maya Silva, a high schooler in Guatemala, and her dream of becoming a fashion designer. After gang violence threatens her life and the life of her mother, the two women, along with an unlikely companion, are forced to escape Guatemala into Mexico and cross the U.S. border. Your descriptions of the dangers families face during this journey and the horrors of what awaits them once they get to the U.S. are detailed. And horrific. I can only imagine the trauma you witnessed and heard while interviewing migrants at a humanitarian respite center in McAllen, Texas. Can you talk us through what you learned from this experience?
1: Yes, uh, visiting the humanitarian respite center was a very eye opening experience for me. I knew I was researching for a novel, but I was also there as a human being, right? As a, a mother, as a daughter. As a wife, I, I felt so many emotions. And the two thoughts, or I guess feelings that really stood out to me, were that so many people had such hope, even though they had been through such horrors. You know, they, those two emotions were really side by side. And then I noticed that there were so many small moments within the bigger moments for migrants. So, what I mean is crossing the border, being separated from loved ones. Having to adapt to a new country, being put on a bus to go meet your sponsor, right, in your asylum case. These are big moments, but there are so many smaller moments. I remember sitting in the bus station and talking to migrants who were about to get on buses to go to different states all over the country. And they would hold these folders and sit very quietly. And I remember um, talking to one woman and she asked if. Um, she could use my cell phone to call a family member where she was headed. I think it was Chicago, and I said, "Of course." And she gave me this little scrap of paper with some numbers on it, and I dialed for her. And then I gave her privacy, but you know, she when I came back and she had finished her conversation, she just had tears. And so the simple thing, like a phone call, you know, hearing a loved one's voice, maybe they haven't been able to connect with them for months, and so I just. There was so much. And as a novelist, I felt like I I wanted to capture all of this in the book. Um, I had to leave out as much as I, I put in. So maybe there'll be more books. Who knows?
0: Yeah, I can only imagine that the information you gathered was seeds for quite a few books. You know, it's interesting, and I don't talk about this very much at all. I'm actually from Australia. I've lived in England, and I've lived here in the States since 83. But during that time, I was held in custody in uh, London at Heathrow Airport. And while I was held in custody, probably about 12 hours, I was stuck in London for about, I don't know, probably six or eight months. And after numerous trips out to Heathrow at ridiculous hours at night with a lawyer and, uh, you know, waiting, 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 not knowing what was going to happen to me, um... All they said was that it was a mistaken identity and that I was the third Australian woman my age who this had happened to in the last couple of months. Uh, But there was nothing they could do um, at that time. Uh, One of my lawyers told me that it had been written up in a legal magazine somewhere, I don't know. I definitely blocked that uh, part of my life out for many, many years. I mean, that was over 30-something years ago, and when I think of it, I still start to feel physically sick. But what happened was it was kind of a reverse because I was just taken away, put in this room at a Heathrow Airport. I was the only white person. Everyone else was of color and they were from different parts of the world, many from Africa. And I remember I walked in there, and I was kind of in shock because I was actually due to go to a fashion show immediately off the plane, right? Which is interesting because your book's about this. So here I am, I'm tossed in this room. I'm really scared. I don't know what's going on. My passport has been taken away and I haven't been offered anything to drink, nothing, no water. And I'm jet lagged after this trip. And the women that were there were the kindest people. They came up to me and just held me in their arms. I get teary just thinking about this, but they held me in their arms and Was so loving, and and I ended up having this conversation with them because we were in there. I was in there for a long time, and I was saying, "What are you all doing in here? Why why am I the only white person here?" And they were saying, "Because even though we've come in from countries that are, um, you know, we want asylum or we have relatives here, they need so much paperwork that sometimes some of us have it, some some of us don't." And I remember thinking that, and this was in the early '80s it was so sad for me seeing this. Um, I, I It was just an, an eye-opening uh, part in what the world was at that stage because I was very young. I was in my 20s and it was heartbreaking for me. I, I almost didn't want to leave this group of women because of what they were going through, you know? But it really affects me deeply now when I hear these stories and that's the reason I chose to read your book. I knew it was getting to this. And when it got there, it was difficult for me to read because it brought back a lot lot of stuff. But I really think it's important that we talk about what's going on. And this is still going on at the border between Mexico and the United States. Right, right. Anyway, that whole experience... opened my eyes to social justice, and that's been important to me ever since then. So getting back to your book, you wrote in the foreword how devastated you were watching the news in 2018, seeing children being torn away from their parents at the U.S.-Mexican border, and you said that writing borderless was your way of marching, and this really resonated with me. Throughout history, artists often have had the loudest voices, even when what they create is not spoken but painted written, sculpted, or danced. Sadly, it seems that artists' voices have quieted. Their will to create and be heard is often a memory. But on the flip side, we have seen publishers finally giving voice to stories from different ethnic and gender identities and disabled writers. With this in mind, how is your publishing path? And do you feel the creative community needs to stand taller and stronger in the field of poppies? And this relates to the tall poppy syndrome in countries like my home country of Australia.
1: Yeah, thank you um, for the thoughtful com- questions. I mean, and for, you know, honoring me with um, sharing your story about being in the in custody, you know, in England and and just having that experience. I wrote about this in Borderless and yet I still can't imagine experiencing it myself, right? Um that's the power of fiction, but but yours is is nonfiction. Um it's very courageous of someone to to move and to move to a new country and when they have all these barriers put in place, um it's it's extra difficult. I just found that the the people that I met were dealing with so much physically mentally, emotionally, psychologically, you know, and, and yet they kept going, they kept going. And like you, you know, endured so much that was unexpected. And and that's the part that I think is so taxing is the uncertainty, you know, will I be here a day, a week, six months, right? And so um, I wanted to capture that in the in the book as well. And as far as the creative community, I I agree with you. There is a kind of, I wouldn't say quietness, but I wonder what it is. Maybe maybe I think artists are tired and I don't mean to make fun. I, I'm thinking more just that it, it's just um to make yourself vulnerable and to be constantly out there and using your art as a as a form of self-expression and to bring awareness to different issues. It it can be draining in many ways. And I think self-care is always important and and finding that balance. Part of me wishes, I woke up at four in the morning every day and I could write a book a year and I just, I feel that urgency, but then I have kids and I'm teaching and, and you know, I, I do want to maintain some balance. So I think it's figuring out that that uh, balance for for every individual person. I do think social media helps in many ways to bring people together, and and there are some collectives being formed like Latinx in Publishing, and Las Musas is a wonderful network of um, Latina authors who write for children. I mean, there are so many now that I feel, I feel like I could just go online and, and find other people to, you know, share these experiences with. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. It seems that the tragedies that happened during the pandemic and the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the riots and the death and social injustices definitely caused publishing companies to sit up and listen and say, okay, we need to open our publishing doors and bring in more ethnic voices, diversity, diversity. Uh, And they did. And I just wanted to keep going. I love reading books and translations because they take me to other countries. The cadence is different in the writing. The feel of the writing is different. Uh, I love it. And I'm excited and grateful to the publishers for doing this. And please keep signing diverse and ethnic voices because we need them. We want them. And I'm excited by this change.
1: Me too. I really am. My publisher has been great. Um, My editor, Caitlin DeLouis, she is phenomenal. She really, really pushes me to, um, you know, get at the core of the story. And whenever I think I'm done, it's like, nope, no, you're not. And, you know, in the moment I'm like, oh man, I just want to be done. But I'm so grateful to her because once the book is out, that's it, you know. And I I love hearing from readers. The book has only been out a couple of weeks. And I'm hearing from so many readers that, you know, they're like, is there a sequel? You know, and it's just so rewarding um, to hear that they're invested in the characters that much that they want to know, like, more about their lives. And so I'm happy with, um, like you said, this kind of, you know tide, this turning of the tide that's happening in publishing and seeking more stories um, from authors who've traditionally, you know, their work has been marginalized. And now bringing that to the center is, is really important.
0: Yes, it is. For our listeners, there are parts in the book where your characters talk about being in the cages at the border and I was just thinking of all the people that I've known since I've lived here in the States who have been from South America, uh, Mexico, Guatemala, they've all been such loving people. They all want to hug you. They all want to hold you and I was thinking how awful that would be for people from these countries that are unable to even hold each other, families split apart. They're not allowed to go to the bathroom when they need to go. They have to go when they all go together. It's like a bathroom call. Uh, they're given food that is often not edible. And also, they're given food that their bodies aren't used to eating and digesting. So, when you put all this together, it's just a really sad portrait of immigration. It
1: really um, is doing the research and reading
0: interviews
1: of people who had been in the, the migrant centers in the cages. I mean, some of the, the food wasn't even edible, you know, and it was all coming from these, like, you know, eggs that come from a box. It's just really, it's it's not humane. And, you know, you hear stories of people who are genuinely sick or have infections or the children who do, and, and the guards who just say, oh, take Tylenol. And some, some children have died, you know, so I think bringing all that through story can be very effective in allowing readers to grasp the the horror of it, but also to charge them up, you know, and think, what can I do? Or when I see a news clip on TV, you know, maybe they'll think twice about it, like, how accurate is this? You know, even the news, of course, has a perspective, so...
0: Yeah, and every news station has their own perspective. Yes. What I loved about your book is that it confirms what I've talked a lot about on this show, and that is that by reading fiction, we can become more empathetic toward one another. Right. Yes.
1: Yes. Because you experience it as the character.
0: Yes, exactly. Right. Right.
1: Absolutely. The empathy.
0: Let's talk about your main character, Maya's love for fashion, and how it developed into trash. And for anyone not familiar, trash is the term given to fashion when clothing is designed and made from anything that can be recycled. It's a blend of the word trash and fashion. Yeah. I mean, your question answers it, right? It's taking
1: bits of other pieces that. People might throw away and making something new from it so there's a theme or I guess a metaphor of reinvention in that which is what Maya and and her mother ultimately have to do with their lives and I wanted to have a character who was interested in something artistic I'm always thinking about that like what is this character into right and whether it's photography or cooking or art and So for Maya, I I was thinking about her mother actually um, teaching her how to sew and her grandmother being really good um, at sewing, as many women are in Guatemala. And so I thought, okay, well, Maya is a teenager, so maybe she's interested in being a fashion designer. And then I went to a fashion show at Framingham State. And it was just one of those moments where it's so serendipitous because I thought I was going to a regular fashion show. Some of my students had work there, and it was trashin'. And I had never heard of this. I'm like, "What is trashin'? Is this a typo in the on the flyer?" You know. I can't even describe the garments that they came up with. I mean, they used coffee filters to make a corset. They used wrappers from crayons to make, um, you know, a fitted A-line dress. I mean, they were so creative. One used caution tape and made a tube top out of it. So I just thought this is what Maya needs to be into. Um, and that's that's how I came up with
0: that. Well, I love the idea of and because I taught it when I was teaching art in high school. And I'm a lover of project-based learning. And I believe that through teaching project-based learning, we kind of reel in every student that might not be interested in one subject, but they love maybe the history or geography part of that subject that you're teaching. And I found that by teaching Trashin, I was able to do that. Um, so with that in mind, have you considered writing a companion teaching guide to Borderless? I love that question because I, as a teacher, right, I, I can do that.
1: I know there is a reading guide uh, available for free online at the Simon and Schuster page um, for the book, and as far as a teaching guide. I know that Facing History was interested in possibly doing something with borderless, so that would be amazing. But now I'm thinking like, yeah, I suppose I could do that, you know, and um, yeah, I certainly have lots of the research and videos and documentaries and writing assignments, and that could be really fun.
0: I think it'd be a fantastic um, addition to a classroom. So anyway, good luck with that.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay, I'm
0: definitely, I'm going to look into that. Good. I'll keep an eye out for it. Um, Now, I was wondering if you could tell us about what you love about Guatemala. What memories do you hold dear? uh, Because your parents are from Guatemala, right?
1: Yes. I mean, um, both of my parents uh, were born and raised in Guatemala. And I always say this, but Guatemala was present in our home growing up. It was an entire country, culture, way of being, way of loving that was ever present um even though we lived in a suburb of boston in massachusetts when i was 9 um our parents took us to guatemala for the first time and i remember being upset because i really wanted to go to disney world and they took us to guatemala instead <laughs> little did i know like that this this was a life changing trip you know even at 9 i just was i just fell in love with the country itself i met so many cousins and we played outside and you know, we cooked food and I loved playing in the pila, which is um, like a stone um, structure where you wash dishes and uh, hand wash clothes. And I just loved everything was so sensory. You know, I can still like smell the lime and cucumbers and like the dirt pathways. And it just, it felt, um, yeah, very sensory. And so we would go back to visit family and in my 20s, I did move there for six months, and then my husband and I got married there. He's from New Hampshire, but I always say his heart and his stomach are Guatemalan. <laughs> oh,
0: <laughs> I love that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So we lived there for a time, and we brought our young sons there uh, last year to visit, and it's just a place that um, is, is a homeland in many ways, even though I was born in the United States. I keep going back to this country um, to, to really fill me up. And I learn so much every time I go. Um, but like you said, there are other aspects to it. You know, it's it can be really difficult to witness some of the poverty and some of the um the many people who are really just looking for work, for jobs. They want to support their families and send their kids to school and And because there aren't many opportunities, then the negative options kind of become more attractive, right? Joining a gang or things like that.
0: Yeah. And unfortunately, the disparity between the wealthy and the poor just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's just so sad. You know, it's interesting, though, while I was watching you speaking about Guatemala, I could see the animation in your face and your body language. And I just wanted to say to you, I can see that coming to life in your stories, uh, and especially in that teaching guide. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. Oh, I love that.
0: Yes, that's what it's like.
1: <laughs> yep. yeah. You got me talking about Guatemala, and I just, I yeah, I light up. There's... There is something powerful in connecting to, uh, you know, this homeland and also ancestors that I never met that you can feel when you're there and honoring their stories. And I, I have a, a children's book set in Guatemala that um, will hopefully come out in the next couple of years. And So, um, yeah, I just am excited to showcase the beauty of the country as well. You know.
0: Oh, I'm looking forward to reading your children's book. I just think this is so important because when children read stories about different countries in their classrooms in elementary school, or maybe their teacher shows them how to make a dish from uh, one of the countries that they're reading about, it takes the fear away and turns it around into curiosity. That's another great way to teach empathy. Yes. Okay, Jennifer, let's talk about books. What are you currently reading?
1: Um, so I love YA, and um, I'm really excited about um, this book that is coming out in August by Autumn Allen. It's called All You Have to Do, and it has two timelines. One is during the civil rights uh, and movement, and then there's one um, it, during the Million Man March to Black men, young men, teenagers. And I love books with two timelines because I, you, you sort of get two for one, you know, you have like both storylines. I love figuring out how they're going to meet or work together or what, how they're in conversation. So um, this is a debut novel by Autumn Allen. I'm super excited about that. And I have the the arc for that. And then another one is imposter syndrome and other confessions by Alejandra Kim. This one is by uh, Patricia Park. And You know, it tells the story of a young teenager in Queens, New York, and how she attends a private school and people are very confused by her name, Alejandra Kim. So are you Latina? Are you Asian? You know, she's uh, Korean, but her family is from Argentina. You know, so it's it's very interesting for a lot of reasons. But I think as the years continue, we see more and more biracial and multiracial young people which is great you know but they also need books where they can see themselves reflected and i think that that's an exciting sort of next chapter in publishing there are already some great books about you know biracial teens and multiracial teens but i think we we need more and books in general set in other countries i'm excited about that i think it's a wonderful way to like you said learn about another part of the world and YA is so exciting because Authors are constantly like trying new things, and I I just see that as an exciting new chapter.
0: Yes, I do too, and I just want to keep it continuing from pre-K all the way through high school. I think that's something that uh, publishers need to be aware of, from little flip books, the little ones, to early readers, and historic novels for high school. I think fictional books based on fact, getting back to what we were talking before, is how we educate children uh, at a young age about important cultural events around the world. And these stories create empathy within the reader.
1: Right, right. Like, what's the root cause? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, Unfortunately, with so much emphasis on standardized testing, and then there are budget cuts, and then it's a lot to ask of a, a working artist to come into schools without, you know, some compensation, but schools don't have budgets for that. You know, it, it's like this like super messy, just um, not, but little by little we can, we can untangle it, I think.
0: And I hear what you're saying about, it's a lot to ask of a working artist to come into the schools. My experience has been that actually artists love coming in to offer their time up, especially elderly artists. Um, you know, we forget about the elderly, and they have so much information and wisdom and experience with their artistic talent to share with children. And as long as the teacher is there uh, who can help with the children, it's always been a positive experience for me when I've brought in artists from the community and also when I've gone into schools to volunteer my time. What I found is it actually feeds the artist as much as it feeds the student.
1: Absolutely. I love doing school visits. I love, love, love it. And you're right, it does feed me. uh, It feels that well.
0: Yeah. And it gives such purpose. Speaking of which, how can teachers find you? Can you give us your website information, please? Absolutely. So
1: my website is com, And there's a form on there to contact me. It goes directly to me. So um, I am happy to hear from teachers, librarians, uh, counselors, anybody who is interested in having me visit the school or virtually, which is great. Now that's an option. And I will reply to you directly. So, yeah, please keep
0: me in mind. And how many languages do you
1: speak, Jennifer? Um, so I speak English, Spanish, some French, because I studied it for so long. And I learned a little bit of Vietnamese when
0: I was living in Hanoi, Vietnam. Thank you, Jennifer, for everything you do for educating children and also for the wonderful books you've written. I thoroughly enjoyed reading Borderless. And parents, if you have YA readers in your family, I recommend buying Borderless by Jennifer de Leon. And Jennifer, thank you so much for being a guest on the Bookshop Podcast. It's been a pleasure chatting with you.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and enthusiasm for for Maya's story. It's so great talking to you. I love your stories. And this is such a great conversation.
0: Yeah, I enjoy chatting with you too. And thank you, Jennifer. You're a gem. Thank you
1: so much. And I'm going to download, I'm going to put this right now and just listen to this like crazy, which is great because I'm always looking for new um podcasts and, you know, audiobooks. So now I'm a huge fan now. This is great. Thank you.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to my conversation with Jennifer DeLeon about her new book, Borderless. To find out more about The Bookshop Podcast, go to thebookshoppodcast.com and make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to the show. You can also follow me at Mandy Jackson Beverly and The Bookshop Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and on YouTube at The Bookshop Podcast. If you have a favorite indie bookshop that you'd like to suggest we have on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you via the contact form at thebookshoppodcast.com. The Bookshop Podcast is written and produced by me, Mandy Jackson Beverly. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly, Executive assistant to Mandy Adrian Ottahan, and graphic design by Francis Farala. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.